Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We're in a time of crisis in more ways than one. In addition to the global pandemic, we're also facing climate change, growing political unrest, and increased competition between nations. So what can we learn from these crises coming together, and how do we move forward? Today, we're joined by Dr. Daniel Jurgen. He's an expert on energy, geopolitics, and the global economy. He's a best-selling author and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and he's just released a new book called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan's also the vice chairman of IHS Market and chairman of Sierra Week. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mary Catherine. Very glad to be with you. You are one of the world's leading authorities on energy, international politics, and economics. I'm very familiar with your background, but for those listeners of the bid who may not be, can you just share a little bit about what brought you here and made you interested in the intersection of those areas? Well, what really enabled me to get here was I had a postdoctoral fellowship once at Harvard, and for two years, no one was supervising me, so I could do what I wanted, and I jumped (laughs) into this subject And I just found it so fascinating, exactly for the reasons you said, because the thing about energy, it extends from everything from geopolitics to markets to technology. And the story is always changing and it's always a very important story. And so I've just found myself continually deeply engaged in trying to understand where we're going. And so in the spirit of where we're going, your new book is called The New Map. Why did you call it that? The idea of a map, of course, is it tells you something about directions and the directions here are across a new terrain. It's the recognition that so much has changed in the last few years. Obviously, the shale revolution in the United States, the U.S., the world's largest energy producer, energy independent. On that side, changing global markets. But also on the other side, you had the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015, which has really become the benchmark for governments for investors and increasingly for companies about heading towards lower carbon or net zero carbon. You had the falling cost of renewables and then also the geopolitical terrain changing really rather dramatically and in some ways quite worryingly and moving from a world that seems to have been globalized and globalization to one in which globalization is becoming fragmented. So all of that said, we're on a new terrain and we need a new map and That's what I've tried to provide in the new map. The new terrain in which we find ourselves includes multiple crises. On top of the coronavirus crisis, we're also facing a climate crisis. We're facing big changes in energy, growing geopolitical tensions between nations. How did we get here? What's happened over the last couple of years that led to today? I think that several things have come together. One is, of course, a much greater focus on climate A lot of that driven by the United Nations IPCC studies and the fact that that has been taken up in so many different ways. I think the changing relationship between China and the United States has been driven by many things. And then continuing technical change and technological change. And, you know, wind and solar are 50-year-old industries, basically, in their modern form. But it's only in the last 10 years that they've really matured and really become competitive and costs have come down. And so that's changing the competitive landscape. And I guess one other thing is this change position of the United States in world energy markets, because it's not only the largest producer of oil, it's also the largest producer of natural gas. And in that sense, certainly the geopolitical landscape has changed as those energy and oil markets have changed. So for example, 
The U.S. has become a net energy exporter, so we no longer rely on other countries for energy imports necessarily. How has that affected the geopolitical landscape and what other shifts are we seeing in energy markets that could have future geopolitical implications? In this case, what it's done is it's given the United States a kind of flexibility in foreign policy that it didn't have when it was importing 60% of its oil and people worried about disruptions. There was a disruption last year when the largest piece of infrastructure in the world oil industry in Saudi Arabia was attacked by Iranian drones. And in years past, you would have seen panic in the market and prices going through the roof. Well, if there was panic, it only lasted about 48 hours, partly because the Saudis could repair it, but partly also because the knowledge that there's the United States producing 13 million barrels a day. It would not have worked without the change in the energy position in the United States because the Iranians said the world needs our oil. And I can just give one other example, which was I was at a conference in St. Petersburg where Vladimir Putin and Chancellor Angela Merkel were on the stage and they said I could ask the first question. And I asked a question aimed at Putin about diversifying the Russian economy And by accident, I mentioned shale, and he started shouting at me about it quite vociferously. makes one a little nervous. And the reason for that is that he sees shale makes the U.S. more competitive in the world, and he sees it as something that's an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy. So that's one big change. This year has been a really strange year, and particularly in the oil market. The oil market collapsed with the coronavirus. So what impact did that have short-term or maybe even longer-term? And where do you see it going from here? The market not only collapsed, it went into negative territory, which people hadn't really imagined could happen. Producers were actually having to pay people to take oil back. They ran out of storage. What then happened is we saw that the world oil market was no longer OPEC versus non-OPEC. It has seemed to be for decades. It was the big three. It was the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And the U.S. stepped in and basically brokered a deal to stabilize the oil market, which is stabilized in this kind of twilight zone of pricing, but took it back from total disaster. And even you had the big importing nations who were very fearful of what a collapse of the oil industry would mean overall to the global economy. But it's now in a sort of waiting for the virus to end, like every other part of the economy, like the central bankers, like the Federal Reserve, waiting for the vaccine to get beyond it. And I think at that point, we'll see demand recovering. And the two signals I'll point to is in China, oil demand now, where the virus is under control, is now higher than it was this time last year. And interestingly, in October, in India, demand for oil was higher than it was at this time last year. So that's a signal that when we come out of this, demand does recover. But Mary Catherine, there are going to be lasting changes that came from the lockdown and technological changes and behavioral changes. And what do you think some of those changes might be? I think one thing is commuting. A lot of people working at home, particularly people not keen necessarily to commute every day to the office. I think a lot of CEOs, a lot of companies are saying, well, wait a second, do we need everybody in every day or do we need them two days? Or, But what about culture? What about creativity? What about mentoring? No one's quite sure what the right balance will be, but it will be changed. I think seven years of digitalization were compressed into seven or eight months now. I think a decade ago, we couldn't have operated the economies the way it is today, even companies running big industrial enterprises. International travel affected. The world will not be exactly the same. I think it'll be 
a more flexible world in terms of work. You said that you do think oil demand will be coming back, but certainly there was a dramatic drop in carbon emissions over the course of the past six months or for periods in different markets, depending on what was going on. What do you think the impact of all this will be on the energy transition? And how might that transition then as it unfolds affect the shift of the global balance of power we've been talking about? Well, even as we have been going through the pandemic and the lockdowns, there is more and more discussion and focus around energy transition. I think it has become the single most common phrase used in any energy discussions today. And it really means a shift from the energy mix we have today, which is 84% fossil fuels for the world, to one that's lower carbon or net zero carbon. The big question is how fast it comes, what the cost will be, what will be the elements of it, what are the strategies to get there. When you have an $87 trillion economy, which we had in 2019, this change doesn't happen overnight. And in fact, we don't have all the technologies that are needed for that. We, working with former Energy Secretary Muniz, did a study for Bill Gates Foundation, the Energy Breakthrough Coalition, identifying the technologies that aren't there in a commercial way. So I think we've got to be realistic about that. But I think if you're getting at the geopolitical significance, China would be in a stronger position for an energy transition because first, it would not be importing anywhere near as much oil and it regards oil imports as a strategic issue. And secondly, it's carved out a pretty strong position in what they call new energies. Half the electric cars in the world are in China. 70% of the solar panels come from China. Countries that are heavily dependent upon exporting oil will eventually be affected by this, maybe not as quickly as people think, at least I think, because I think we're going to see a rebound in oil and demand will continue to grow for a while. And I think the U.S. has this incredible strength that maybe is not fully appreciated, but we have an incredible ecosystem of innovation from our 17 national laboratories from the $6.5 billion a year that the Department of Energy spends on basic science to companies, to startups, to universities, to research institutions. And I think innovation responds to need. It just doesn't happen necessarily overnight. And so then what are some of the drivers that would accelerate that transition? You said there's some big technology gaps. Where do you see the biggest gaps in technology? Where do you see gaps in demand that would otherwise accelerate that transition? Number one is batteries, because the big issue with wind and solar is that they are intermittent. They do depend upon sun and wind. If you could store electricity for extended periods, for days and days, and into weeks, that would really change the role of wind and solar in the electricity supply system. I think the second thing that's getting so much attention is hydrogen. And is hydrogen something that could be substituted to provide heating, maybe also in cars, although electricity seems to be the favored right now. And I think the third, and this is why that word net is so important, net zero carbon, is carbon capture the ability to capture carbon, whether you do what are called natural-based solutions with plants, with technologies, what's now called air capture, which sounds a little science fiction-y, but is being scaled up. I think I put those at the top of the list that would be necessary. And it's not just proving something in the laboratory, it's being able to scale it up for an $87 trillion economy. And you spend a lot of time with energy executives, with those who are investing in these technologies do you think that right now we have the level of investment and focus to get us there? Do we need more government involvement? What's going to help close the gaps in those areas? 
I think we have a lot of government involvement and Joe Biden has a $2 trillion climate plan. The EU has very ambitious goals and planning for spending. So I think the financial resources are there, although I think coming out of the pandemic, governments are going to have a lot of debt and there's going to be this tension to put it in sort of generic terms between environment ministers and finance ministers as how much goes into recovery, how much goes into bringing small business back, which has really been very hard hit by the pandemic, and how much goes into energy transition. But I think commitment is there. And with the Biden administration, you'll have the U.S. rejoining the global effort. But I think it does come back to technology, and technology takes time. You mentioned that Biden certainly has made climate a key part of his campaign and already in the transition policies that they put out and expression of intended policy, climate features really prominently among them. So it sounds like you think that's likely to bring a little bit more multilateralism about. I think that, Mary Catherine, you put your finger on a very important issue that goes beyond climate and energy and it's multilateralism that believing that there is a international community and that one of the great strengths that the United States has had is its allies, its other countries it works with, rather than an environment where we regard our allies as our adversaries. And I think that these global problems require global solutions. And the number one example is the pandemic itself. Compare this reaction to 2008, the financial crisis, where you had the G20 and other countries really working together to address this problem and a very bad economic situation. You haven't had that with the pandemic. You haven't had it with the virus. And there's a cost for that. There's a big cost from that. It doesn't work when you're dealing with big global problems. So I think a return to multilateralism will be very important for addressing a lot of the world's issues. So, Dan, you mentioned that you think China will be a winner in the energy transition. And we've seen heightened tensions between the U.S. and China in the past few years, ranging from trade and technology to finance and diplomacy. What do you think that energy dynamic is going to look like between the U.S. and China in the next couple of years? I think there are more than one part to it. One of these changes you wouldn't have expected a decade ago is the U.S. is exporting oil and natural gas to China And that is part of the way of trying to fix the trade deficit that the U.S. has with China. But I think energy looms very large for China as a growing economy and a country that still gets about 60% of its total energy from coal, but imports oil, imports natural gas. One of the areas that I write about in the new map involves a map of the South China Sea, which is the most important body of water in the world for world commerce. One third of world commerce passes through it. I think it's also the most dangerous body of water in the world because that's a place where the U.S. and China could collide. And U.S. and Chinese naval ships have come close over the last few years several times to colliding. And that body of water for the Chinese, one of their main interests in it is assuring the security of the imported oil that comes through it from the Middle East and from Africa. And then the significance of another map, which is the map of what they call the Belt and Road, their $1.4 trillion plan to tie Central Asia, South Asia, Middle East, Europe, Africa into kind of a greater economic connectivity, as they call it. That, too, has a very big energy dimension, and it also has inevitably a geopolitical dimension. And how are China's relationships with emerging economies, for example? We've talked a lot about the more developed markets How are the relationships and the ties that they're building with more emerging markets playing into this? 
for a lot of countries, look to China becomes a very important market for them. We've heard now the prime minister of Singapore has said it publicly, don't make us choose between the United States and China. I hear it from people in the Middle East. I did a dialogue with the president of Colombia, and he said, China is a really important market. Our most important relationship is with the United States, but let's not get caught in the middle. I think for many developing countries, China does loom large as the market for their commodities. But there's controversy about that. There's controversy about their investment, about the debt terms, which are not transparent. But you look at the Central Asian countries, well, they have Russia there and then they have China there and China is their economic future. The other big emerging market where things are going in the opposite direction are between China and India, where they actually had shooting confrontations in the Himalayas over the summer. And India now is really actually saying, how do we back off from some of these supply chains with China. So I think there's a sense where there's a natural rivalry between those two giant countries. And how do you see the energy transition playing out for leaders of those emerging markets? And what are sort of realistic expectations? Is the delta between obligations on developed markets and the pressure for growth and opportunity in emerging markets that creates some of the sort of geopolitical tension around energy transition? What do you think is likely to play out? What do you see leaders of those countries saying? What do you think is fair? Well, I think it's complicated for them. They don't have the financial resources that a Germany does or a Netherlands does, and they don't have the level of income for their people. So just a couple of weeks ago, did a big India energy forum. We had Prime Minister Modi, and we had several of his cabinet ministers, Minister of Finance, as well as Petroleum and Industry and Commerce and so forth. And their message is that to them, energy transition has a different meaning than it does to, let's say, if you're sitting in Amsterdam or Berlin or Paris, because for them, they have hundreds and hundreds of millions of very poor people. And those people are cooking with waste wood, with animal waste, crop waste. And the World Health Organization has said that the single biggest environmental problem in the world is indoor air pollution. And there are 3 billion people, like maybe 40% of the world's population, that are afflicted by that. So for an India, an energy transition is not only meaning wind and solar, and they have big commitments in wind and solar. It also means commercial energy, using oil and particularly natural gas to get people away from waste wood. And so India has a $60 billion natural gas infrastructure program. And I think it is important to understand that there is a difference in how they look at it all with the same concerns about climate, but with other imperatives that don't exist for the developed world. Mm -hmm. We at BlackRock are very focused on the energy transition from a financial markets perspective. And while all the geopolitical dynamics we've been talking about play into that, we spend a lot of time thinking about the impact on specific companies. And so I'm curious how you see those companies transitioning. And do you feel like we'll see oil and gas companies look quite different and be that much more proactive or perhaps enter large transactions to transform themselves over the coming years? What do you think the change in the private sector might look like? I think that the pressure on the private sector is really becoming much more pronounced. There are more investors who are more focused on it. And one of the elements of it is how do your strategies comport with Paris objectives going back to the Paris Climate Agreement? And so companies are adapting to that. And you've seen major European oil and gas companies saying, we're no longer international oil and gas companies. We're now integrated energy companies. And we are going to build up our position in electricity, in wind, in solar, in new technologies. 
And so that is something that is just really, I think, getting going, although some of them have been in the wind business, for instance, for a long time. And I think U.S. companies, too, have different strategies for approaching it. But I think every management that I know of now thinks about ESG and how to respond and how to be responsive to it. We've talked a lot about the intersection of the coronavirus crisis and climate change and geopolitical tensions. And as we now have a new administration coming into effect in the U.S., there's a lot for them to tackle intersecting crises. What do you think the new map that needs to be drawn looks like, just to reference the title of your book? Where do they need to start as they think about how these crises are intersecting and the role that energy in particular plays in them? I think in terms of climate, they've already sketched it out. Joe Biden has said it is one of the four priorities of his administration, and he'll be very engaged internationally as well as domestically. And if I may use a phrase, stepping on the gas on renewables. I think where their challenges will be is in dealing with, as you said, the geopolitical side, how to deal with Russia, which is the other country where we're sort of have an incipient Cold War, using a lot of sanctions on Russia, even as Russia asserts itself as a global power. And one consequence of that, by the way, is we see a much stronger relationship between Russia and China. I have a great picture in the book of President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin wearing aprons, making Russian pancakes together, cooking them. (laughs) And Putin is showing Xi how to make them. But at the same time, when they were cooking up pancakes, they were cooking up something bigger too, because for the first time, Chinese troops were participating in a huge Russian military exercise. So I think that is a geopolitical reality that's not fully taken into account. I think how to deal with China is going to be the number one geopolitical issue for a Biden administration, how to deal with it multilaterally, how to get the right balance. So I think it's not going to be like the old relationship with China, where every president has said things like, we need a constructive relationship with China, engage with a changing China. You don't hear that anymore, Mary Catherine. Whether it's Democrats or Republicans, China is now a strategic rival. It's great power competition. The Chinese are saying the same thing. And that is a more difficult relationship. And yet, fundamentally, and this is why it's so different from the Soviet American Cold War, China is so deeply embedded in the world economy, and the U.S. and China are so interdependent China is the largest holder of U.S. government debt. And how you manage a relationship where you're both rivals and so interconnected is going to take a lot of very wise and thoughtful statecraft. It's quite an agenda for 2021. A lot faces a new administration. I'm struck by the fact that you said as you were writing the book, you had this list of all the different quotes that heads of state have said about our relationship with China And although you spent all your time and have for so many years focused on these issues, speaking with leaders in the private sector and public sector who shape energy markets and geopolitics, I'm curious if in the process of writing the book, you learned a few things. Are there a few things that kind of stood out to you over the course of writing the new map that may have been new insights? Well, first, I think it was seeing where U.S.-Chinese relations were going and where the sensitive spots were. I think, secondly, what became apparent is wind and solar to the degree to which they've become mainstream. And thirdly, I would say this shift towards from what was agreed at Paris in 2015 to see the impact in 2020 is quite striking. And then it was also, you know, just the process of discovery. We think about change coming because of great forces in history. That's true. 
but also just to see the role of individuals who want to make things happen. A guy standing on a street corner in 2008, he's late for a date in San Francisco and he can't get a cab and he looks at his iPhone and says, well, maybe I could do something with software and out of that comes Uber. Or a totally obsessed individual who believes for 18 years that you can get gas out of shale rock and everybody says you're wasting your money, it takes 18 years, he gets there. Or, you know, a young technologist in San Francisco, a guy who's just really obsessed with electric vehicles, going to lunch at a fish restaurant with Elon Musk and wanting first to convince him about an electric airplane. And Musk says, I'm not interested. But he says, electric car. He says, I'll be interested. And the electric car died a century ago. It was finished. I guess that's another thing that really has changed, that if you look at a decade ago, electric cars, they weren't serious things. It was a remnant of the past. Look at now, every automobile maker is gearing up to make electric cars and governments are promoting it. You know, so the role of individuals strikes me, even as you have these great forces at the same time. Maybe that's one of the things that I also learned from writing the new map. It is striking to hear how many of those trends may mean that we're on the precipice of major changes. And I'm curious, what do you think then your next book, maybe in 10 more years, might be about? Well, maybe not in 10 years, because, you know, it's not a good idea to wait 10 years between one book or another. So let's say <laughs> five years, I co-wrote a book years ago called The Commanding Heights about globalization, moving from state control to confidence in markets and how instead of the balance of power, how the balance of confidence had shifted. Well, I think we're seeing a lot of shift back. And I think I would like to revisit that about how people think about economies and what it means in terms of policies and what governments do, because I think there is this pendulum that swings back and forth. And, you know, Mary Catherine, it's very interesting that you don't think about it at the time, but write a book like this, and you realize all the books that you've written before kind of play into it, and things you've thought about become part of it as the world keeps changing, and the world will continue to change. And so there'll be a lot to write about in the next book, whatever it is. Well, I will look forward to that. I love the new map as I have loved each of your books. And so thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you, Mary Catherine. And it's great to talk with you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44. 
020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523. BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.